trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, this is uh, this is our Friday broadcast, last show of the week. Uh, I guess that's kind of a warning. I'm feeling a little froggy today, so I'm actually going to be delving into a topic that I know makes some people uncomfortable. We've been trained since we were children to believe that this is this is a very taboo subject, and it's not something that should be talked about, even in whispers. You know, the matter was settled by good old Abraham Lincoln. I- I'm talking about secession. And you're going to notice a little bit of a theme through today's show where uh, we're, we're going to talk about to the need for decentralization, the need for uh, creating distance between yourself and systems that wish to rule you at any cost. Why am I doing this? Well, um, because I know that tomorrow, on the anniversary of January 6th, right, dramatic pause, uh, President Biden is going to be addressing the country. And uh, he's going to be rolling out the justification for his wink-wink re-election campaign, which is that there is a problem in the universe, there is a threat to our democracy, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. Here's the spoiler. You are the problem. You believe in freedom. You believe in free markets. You believe in freedom of association, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech. You believe that people should be left alone to pursue happiness, and that as long as their behavior is peaceful, pretty much anything's on the table. Again, as long as their behavior is peaceful. But as you well know, there are people who who strongly disagree with this sentiment. They believe that it is their birthright to basically put on the uh, spurs and, and start whipping you with their riding crop because, by gosh, they were born to lead and you will do what they say because we know what's best. Now shut up and repeat after me. You know, it's, you think I'm exaggerating, but, but I'm telling you, it's, this is the mindset that seems to be very common among the, uh, the ruling class, the political class. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, you remember the speech last year in Philadelphia where the president uh, was, you know, backlit with the, the black, red, and white, you know, the Nazi colors and his dramatic thundering, oh, it's a MAGA, they're terrible, they threaten our whole country. And, you know, the crazy thing is it's, it's not just Donald Trump that he's talking about. If it was that easy, you know, people could just distance themselves and say, well, I'm for freedom, but I'm not necessarily for Trump. But it's anybody who in any way resists this attempt to, to assimilate us into the Marxist Borg. If you're not willing to basically be a communist, <laughs> you are going to have some very serious public relation problems. Especially as you have, uh, you, know, you start to get exposure as someone who's saying, no, I'm not going to do this. So it leaves us with some choices. And I don't tell you this to scare you. Look. The reality of what's going on in front of us is, is not that hard to discern. How much are you paying for gas? How much are you paying for groceries? How's that debasement of the currency working out for us? I mean, for most of us, it's, it's not so great. I think we're all paying a whole lot more than we were even a couple of years ago just to get by. 
We're not living large. And so our quality of living, our, our standard of living is in decline. And, and then that's not to mention that uh, we have, you know, opportunistic politicians portraying us as the threat to all that is good. Why? Well, because we won't bend the knee. We won't, you know, embrace DEI. We won't embrace wokeness. We won't embrace encouraging our children to engage in deviant sexual practices or mutilate themselves permanently out of some misguided sense of who they are. I wish it were otherwise. I really do. But I don't think that uh, you can face any problem without first being willing to see it as it is in the light of day and acknowledge what the truth is. So I'm more interested in the solutions. And for me, the solution, the peaceful solution is found in distancing yourself reduce from, from the systems that want to rule you and reducing your governmental footprint. Now, there are a couple of different ways we can do this. Um, before we get into that topic too far, though, I want to uh, I want to just touch briefly on a, a term that I don't think a lot of us have in our vocabulary, but we really should, and that's the term panarchy. Oh, that sounds awful close to anarchy. Yes, it does. I know. Should we be scared of it? I mean, after all, we've been taught, you know, be be afraid of secession. That's uh, the only possible reason anybody would want to secede is so that they could, I don't know, have slaves. I, I don't know what it is. They, they don't, we, we don't really get a chance to define what that means. But I'm gonna, with the help of some really solid thinkers, I'm going to help uh, explain what secession is as well as what panarchy is. In fact, I want to start there because I think this is, this is possibly the most positive place to begin. Paul Rosenberg has just written about this. I got his email the other day, and I, I just love this, this essay. He says, whatever complaints we have about the U.S. Constitution, it's not hard, or rather it's hard not to appreciate this phrase in its preamble. And that phrase is, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Now, he says, the problem, of course, is that the word liberty has been so abused that it no longer has a clear meaning. It's used as a hooray for us term and not a great deal more. Now, the problem, of course, is that uh, it's been abused so much that without that clear meaning, we could use some, some clarity on this. So he says, I like the phrase and I'd like to substitute a fresh term for liberty, panarchy. So the improved phrase would run like this, to secure the blessings of panarchy to ourselves and our posterity. Yeah. Now, that's meaningful, he says, even within the storm of distraction and distortion that is our modern world, right? Where words only mean what uh, people in power say they mean and can't possibly have, you know, a common meaning that doesn't benefit their particular agenda. So let's start with the word panarchy itself. He says, for those of you unfamiliar with panarchy, it refers to a condition of live and let live, explicitly including political choices. In other words, panarchy means freedom of choice, including political choice. Now, I'm going to step out of his essay for just a moment and, and give you a, a, an example of, of what that means. What if you could choose the system of governance that you wanted to live under? Well, Brian, we do that when we take up residence somewhere. No, 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 no. Now we're getting into that dumb, implied social contract that none of us has ever seen, none of us has ever signed, but all of us are ruthlessly held to as if we did. Look, your geographic location is not what determines whether you have rights or not. 
What if you could choose? What if you could say, well, I like this system better. This system suits me better. It has, you know, lower taxes. It has more personal freedoms. That's the system I choose to live under. That's the governance I would give my allegiance to. Panarchy simply means you have choices. There's more than one choice. Now, of course, this is intolerable to to those who believe, no, 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 no. My system is the one true way. And, of course, they're willing to enforce it at the point of a bayonet. Sorry, Abraham Lincoln, I'm, I'm looking your way even though he distorted the system that our founders gave us and uh, in, in practical terms stuck a knife right through its heart and began the slow death of federalism and the uh, advent of nationalism. Anyway, back to Paul Rosenberg's article. A condition of panarchy is one where you can choose what kind of government you will be ruled by or you can choose to be ruled by none at all. That's actual free choice as opposed to the political version of free choice, which means choose between the options we give you. That sound familiar? He says, the truth is that none of us in the modern West enjoys political freedom. We're permitted to fight about political details, but we're not free to choose ways of life other than the ones provided to us. Now, he says, you'll notice that the political types blather on and on about freedom, but it's always coming down to freedom under something. And that under always involves the few ruling over the many. With panarchy, there is no freedom under. There's just freedom. Now, bear in mind, he says, that panarchy and political freedom hearken directly back to John Locke's second treatise on government and his definition of mankind's natural state. Quote, To understand political power aright and derive from it, 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 derive from it its original, we must consider what a state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the laws of nature without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. i got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on the end of this first segment. But does that sound as scary to you as, as it's supposed to, right? This is supposed to sound like, you know, out-of-control people, you know, having sex out there in the streets in broad daylight when they're not too busy shooting up illicit drugs cooked up in someone's bathtub and, and you're, you know, they're driving down the street, steering with their feet, throwing beer cans out the sunroof at 80 miles an hour through a school zone. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what freedom is. No, it's not. That's the one-dimensional caricature that we're supposed to believe... Uh, results from lack of absolute control by government over every single thing that we do. So let's come back and dismantle that myth a little bit further as we talk about decentralization, panarchy, and secession. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to my sponsors who make this program possible. They include my friend John Harvey and his amazing Iron Sight Brewing Company. Now, if you're a coffee aficionado, this is a subscription coffee service you really should consider. We are talking 72 hours from the roaster to your cup, and they have lots of variety to choose from. I've got a link in my show notes, Iron Sight Brewing Company. IronsightBC.com. Also, I want to thank QuiltonSo.com, TMCPNation.com, and LifesavingFood.com. All right, let's get back to this article about the blessings of panarchy. This is from Paul Rosenberg. When we finished the last segment, we talked a little bit about John Locke's second treatise on government. 
and the idea that if you want to understand political power, you have to remember that all men are naturally in a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they see fit. Now, that, of course, is within the bounds of the laws of nature, but they're, they're free to do this without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. In other words, you have natural rights that exist and pre-exist government. This is something very few people in the ruling class would ever want you to believe because that would lessen their control over you. What do you mean? No, no, no. Your government gives you what rights you have. No, it doesn't. The whole reason it's instituted is to protect those rights. In fact, here's how Paul puts it. He says, bear in mind, this was the foundation of the American Revolution. Among other things, Jefferson held Locke to be one of the three greatest men who ever lived. And Samuel Adams wrote this about him in 1771. Quote, Mr. Locke has often been quoted in the present dispute between Britain and her colonies and very much to our purpose. His reasoning is so forceful that no one has even attempted to disprove it. End quote. So what does panarchy look like in practice? Well, Paul says panarchy delivers political freedom, in addition to physical and economic freedom. So here are the kinds of choices that are available to us all under panarchy. Do you think a constitutional republic is the best model of human organization? Great. Go ahead. Set one up. Oh, do you think a monarchy is best? No problem. Set one up. No one will oppose you. Would you prefer a voluntarist arrangement? Well, go for it. Want to build an anarcho-syndicalist system? Whether or not most of us think that's a great idea, you remain free to try. There's only one limitation for any set of arrangements. You ready? You can't force anyone into your plan. We all remain free to choose with no one forcing or forbidding. See, this is where even a lot of people who ostensibly are on the side of freedom are going to lose their lunch. What? Oh, you can't do that. It'll be absolute oh, lack of control. Again, the statist... The creed of the statist is anything that's not under the direct control of government is by definition out of control. I don't know how many people really believe that in their hearts, but that's what's trained into us from about age five onward. Oh, somebody in authority better give you permission before you start thinking you can do stuff. Otherwise, it's just going to be nothing but chaos, exploding appliances and people being worked to the bone for a nickel a day. You know, no, that's not the case. And people will say, as far as freedom, Free to choose with no one forcing or forbidding. Oh, it can't work. What that really means is I must stop that idea. Paul says it's seldom more than a knee-jerk opposition to something outside the status quo. He says the wild thing about this is the people who object have no way of knowing what they're saying is true. Nothing but the system they idolize is permitted. And this has been the case for a long, long time. He says, the last time we had a chance to experiment with political freedom in the West was in parts of North America during the 18th and 19th centuries, before alternatives to the system were violently suppressed. And those experiments went pretty well for those who stayed westward of power, even in wild country. As for working out the practical details, well, that's simple enough. <clears throat> the problem is, political types instantly demand a full, foolproof plan covering every detail. And Paul says that's not only silly, but the plan would become obsolete on the second day. The solution is to simply get out of the way and let people act on their own. That's what free markets do, isn't it? And they usually work quite well. Now, the demand for a perfect plan in advance is, first of all, impossible. Second of all, it would be almost useless if it were possible. 
Thirdly, and most directly, it's a delaying tactic because its true purpose is to freeze people in place. Something to remember when you hear those objections. Panarchy, he says, is moral. It is a better model because it delivers actual liberty. Panarchy would secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, and if not perfectly, nothing's going to be perfect at this stage of human development, it would certainly be better than the political system, that, or the political systems, rather, that killed 262 million people just over the 20th century. So the bar for panarchy to pass is frightfully low, and all that truly stands in its way is superstition. Now look, I'm not insisting you have to agree with this. You might be feeling your knee jerking a little bit even as you hear this. That's the training that most of us have received. That's the indoctrination most of us have received. But now I'm going to ask you to step into an even more frightful realm and talk a little bit about uh, secession. And I'm going to start with something that, that hopefully doesn't get you too nervous, but the idea is that secession begins at home. I'm actually looking at a, uh, this is an adaptation of a talk that was given by Jeff Deist back in 2015 at the Houston Mises Circle. And he starts by saying, presumably everyone in this room or virtually everyone is here today because you have some interest in the topic of secession. You might be interested in it as an abstract concept or as a viable possibility for escaping a federal government that Americans now fear and distrust in unprecedented numbers. That was nine years ago. Can you believe how bad it's got since then? As Mises wrote in 1927, the situation of having to belong to a state to, wish, to which one does not wish to belong is no less onerous if it's the result of an election than if one must endure it as the consequence of a military conquest. Now, Jeff says, I'm sure that sentiment is shared by many of you. Mises understood mass democracy was no substitute for liberal society, but rather the enemy of it. And of course, he was right. Nearly 100 years later, we've been conquered and occupied by the state and its phony veneer of democratic elections. The federal government is now the putative ruler of nearly every aspect of life in America. And he says, that's why we're here today, entertaining the audacious idea of secession, an idea Mises elevated to a defining principle of classic liberalism. Now, it's tempting, and it's entirely human to close our eyes tight and resist radical change, to, to live in America's past. But he says, to borrow a line from the novelist L.P. Hartley, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. The America we thought we knew is a mirage, a memory, a foreign country. So with that setting the stage, he talks about secession starts as a bottom-up revolution. And he says it's not a political movement. Properly understood, secession means withdrawing consent and walking away from Washington, D.C., not trying to capture it politically and convert the king. Understood? A bottom-up revolution employs both persuasion and democratic mechanisms to secede at the individual, family, community, and local level in a million ways that involve turning our backs on the central government rather than attempting to bend its will. You do see the difference, right? Convincing Americans to adopt a libertarian political system, even if such an oxymoron were possible, is a hopeless endeavor, at least in our current culture. Culture leads, politics follows. In other words, politics is a trailing indicator. But the point he's trying to make here is that both the left and the right tend to be pretty hypocritical regarding secession. And it begins with you. 
That's the thing that uh, most people don't understand. If you really want to, if you want to free yourself from the systems that are trying to rule every aspect of your life, you've got to be willing to secede. And that starts at the individual level. Now, again, I got to tap the brakes because we're coming up fast here on our, our bottom of the hour break. But I'll tell you this. I've got some very solid suggestions from Jeff Deist about how it begins with you, how you can secede right now. And if you're interested, stick around. You don't have to agree with him. You don't even have to implement him. But you might find it a refreshing break of simply, uh, well, I'm going to vote for a kinder master who will make the ongoing evisceration of my liberties a little more comfortable. You know, maybe inject a local anesthetic or something. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, back to the most radical topic that we've covered in some time on this program. And again, my thanks to uh, the great minds of Paul Rosenberg, Jeff Deist, among others. Talking about secession, talking about having actual choice in the system of governance that you choose to live under. And if you find yourself under one that isn't responsive to or or doing its job of protecting your God-given or natural rights, shouldn't you have the freedom to go to a system that will? Or is this some kind of suicide pact? Well, no, everybody else is, you know, chained to this, so you should be chained too. That's the whole crabs in the bucket mentality. So Jeff Deist says, look, secession begins with you. Ultimately, the wisdom of secession starts and ends with the individual. Bad ideas run the world, but must they run your world? The question we all have to ask ourselves is is this. How seriously do we take the right of self-determination? What are we willing to do in our personal lives to assert it? What he's saying here is secession really begins at home with the actions we all take in our everyday lives to distance and remove ourselves from state authority, quietly, nonviolently, inexorably. The state is crumbling all around us under the weight of its own contradictions, its own fiscal mess, and its own monetary system. We don't need to win control of D.C. What we need to do, as people seeking more freedom and a better life for future generations, is to walk away from D.C. and make sure that we don't go down with it. So from here, he says, let me make a few humble suggestions for beginning a journey of personal secession. Now, not all of these may apply to your personal circumstances. No one but you can decide what's best for you and your family. But all of us can play a role in a bottom-up revolution by doing everything in our power to withdraw our consent from the state. So first of all, he says, secede from intellectual isolation. Talk to like-minded friends, family, and neighbors, whether physically or virtually, to spread liberty and cultivate relationships and alliances. The state prefers to have us atomized without a strong family structure or social network. Secondly, secede from dependency. Become as self-sufficient as possible with regard to food, water, fuel, cash, firearms, and physical security at home. Resist being reliant on government in the event of a natural disaster, bank crisis, or the like. Next, secede from mainstream media, which promotes the state in a million different ways. This means ditch cable, ditch CNN, ditch the major newspapers, at least those that are left, and find your sources of information, your own sources of information, in this Internet age. 
take advantage of a luxury previous generations did not enjoy. Next, secede from state control of your children by homeschooling or unschooling them. Secede from college by rejecting mainstream academia and its student loan trap. Educate yourself using online learning platforms, obtaining technical credentials, or simply by reading as much as you can. Secede from the U.S. dollar by owning physical precious metals, by owning assets denominated in foreign currencies, or by owning assets abroad. Secede from the federal tax and regulatory regimes by organizing your business and personal affairs to be as tax efficient and unobtrusive as possible. Secede from the legal system by legally protecting your assets from rapacious lawsuits and probate courts as much as possible. Secede from the state health care racket by taking control of your health and questioning medical orthodoxy. Secede from your state by moving to another one with better tax and regulatory environment, better homeschooling laws, better gun laws, or just one with more liberty-minded people. Secede from political uncertainty in the U.S. by obtaining a second passport or secede from the U.S. altogether by expatriating. Most of all, he says, secede from the mindset that government is all-powerful or too formidable as an opponent to be overcome. Jeff Deist reminds us the state is nothing more than Bastiat's great fiction or Murray's gang of thieves writ large. Let's not give it the power to make us unhappy or pessimistic. Now, keep in mind, he wrote this back in 2015. This was a speech that he gave in 2015. How much more relevant are every one of those suggestions today? I would submit to you that uh, this, is, this is as relevant as it gets. So, from here, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about secession in, in terms of, of political decentralization. This is where Ryan McMakin, also from the Mises Institute, talks about why secession means lower taxes and more trade. He says, when we hear of political movements in favor of decentralization and secession, the word nationalist is often used to describe them. We've seen that word used in both the Scottish and Catalonian secession movements and in the case of Brexit. Often the term is intended to be pejorative. Oh yeah. When used pejoratively, as by the critics of Brexit, the implication is that the separatists seek to exit a larger political entity for the purposes of increasing isolation, throwing up greater barriers to trade, and pursuing a more autarkic economic policy. In other words, we're supposed to believe that efforts at decentralizing political systems leads to states becoming more oppressive and more protectionist. But he says there's a problem with this claim. And with connecting protectionist nationalism to decentralization and secession. That's because the act of breaking up political bodies into smaller work, smaller pieces rather, works contrary to the supposed goals of nationalism. That is when a political jurisdiction is broken up into smaller independent units, those new units are likely to become more reliant on economic integration and trade, not less. And this dependency increases as the country size becomes smaller. So if the goals of the nationalists include economic autarky and isolation, nationalists will quickly find these goals very hard to achieve. And he says that's true for at least three reasons. One, economic self-sufficiency is costly and difficult. Two, smaller countries seek tax competition and tax arbitrage. And three, small states actually perform better. Now he goes into a lot of detail on all of these. 
And I would really strongly recommend, read the article. It's, it's a fairly lengthy read. It's a good one to take on for this weekend. But the bottom line here is, he says, all too often opponents of decentralization and secession insist that whenever a region, member state, or nation is allowed to go its own way, it will immediately raise trade barriers, raise taxes, and forget the benefits of international cooperation. Yet in recent decades, there's scant evidence to suggest that this is a likely outcome in practice. In fact, it appears far more likely that seceding countries and territories will move in the opposite direction of these dire predictions, away from economic nationalism and toward a more open economy. By the way, he's got extensive footnotes here to give some backing to the case that he's trying to make. Why do I bring this up? Well, look, I'm not, in, I'm not going to encourage you to, uh, you know, sit riveted to the television screen and watch the president's speech. But I would say, be aware of what Joe Biden is going to say on the anniversary of January 6th and, and pay attention to the case he is trying to build for how those of us who wish to be left alone, those of us who do not want a boot on our neck, are what's wrong with America. And, of course, I think he'll probably find some way to work, you know, blaming this uh, on on white supremacy or something like that. No, it's something far more insidious, at least to the career politician. We want to be left alone because we want to be free. And not just for ourselves, we want others to be free as well. But I guess when it comes down to it, you can really kind of divvy, you know, the world up into two kinds of people. Those who want to be left alone and those who just cannot leave other people alone. They have to find some way to inject themselves into their lives or impose themselves on other people. And and th- this latter group that I'm talking about here, these are the people who believe that political power should be the dynamic that governs every human interaction. I know. It's, it's abhorrent to find yourself in the company of one of those individuals. They're, they're very difficult to be around, and, uh, and usually it's because they're looking for some angle by which they can flex or otherwise assert, you know, they're either political or moral authority over you. Well, can't you see I'm a victim and you are part of an oppressive class? Oh, you didn't know that? Well, that's, that's too bad, because you are. See, I'm much more a fan of, uh, you know, the, the Jeff Deist approach, and that is peacefully walk away. Right? We're not trying to contest their system. I don't want control of their system. All I want is to be away from their system, but they just they just can't let it go. Again, sorry for those of you who really love Abraham Lincoln, but that was Lincoln's problem. Try and leave me, babe. Just try and leave me. See what happens. I know the South was wrong on, on some things, but that desire to exercise their own self-determination... That wasn't wrong. And, and Lincoln was wrong to, to force them into a war of involuntary union. But again, we don't get a very clear picture of this because, uh, well, the victors write the history books. And, you know, we're all supposed to believe, as Nikki Haley found out, well, slavery was, in fact, the only cause of the, the so-called civil war. If you're feeling really adventurous... Try, del- try delving into some books written at the time or in the immediate aftermath of the war between the states. You'll find that you might have a few more questions when you're done than uh, the uh, neat and tidy black and white version that's offered up, you know, as, as most of today's political discourse. Might makes right, I believe, is the, the lesson that we're supposed to learn. Yeah, I don't agree with that either. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, thanks to the sponsors who make this program possible. I want to take a moment to and thank those individual listeners who, out of the kindness of their hearts and their pocketbooks, also are regular contributors and support this show. I, you know, the, the old phrase, buy me a beer, buy me a coffee, whatever it, whatever it is. Just know, I appreciate those of you who find enough value that uh, that you are willing to, to to show that, and and I treat this as a sacred trust. This is not going into my Lamborghini fund for Brian because, you know, I I I don't care. This is not. I'm, I'm never going to get rich talking about the things that I talk about. But that wasn't my goal in the first place. I'm never going to get famous doing this either. My goal is to. Put information out there for individuals who are seeking truth. And then you decide for yourself what to do with that information. I put it out there, though, because I really believe freedom matters. I believe that we are in very grave danger of losing what remains of our freedoms. And to me, that's intolerable. You know, I'm not trying to... I'm, I'm not a hero, and I don't imagine myself to be one... But I am a person whose conscience tells me you need to speak up while you have the ability to speak up. And you need to do it in a way that that no one within earshot is going to have the excuse. Well, no one ever said anything to us. We were never warned. I will make sure that, that as few people as possible will ever have that excuse. That doesn't mean everybody's going to see the light. But for those who are looking for truth and who put greater value on truth than they do on feeling comfortable in whatever, you know, the status quo has to offer them. That's why this program exists. So I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about uh, the effect of woke ideology in higher education. I've been following an account on Twitter for the last few weeks and seen some very interesting graphics charting from 1980 to 2020 and showing the political inclinations of doctors, Lawyers, teachers, um, engineers, and it's fascinating to see how that the ideological spread between you know liberal and conservative. I, I don't know how to put it other than um, left and right. People were more conservative back in 1980, or at least in these professions. But over time, almost without exception. All of these professions have become dominated by very left-wing thinking. And what's the common denominator here? Okay, well, what do they have in common? Every single one of them requires that you pass through the gateways of compliance of higher education, which I think it's safe to say has been pretty much completely captured by left-wing thinking and academics. Fascinating stuff, especially when you look at things like engineering. Really? But yeah. I mean, look, there's there's big money to be made in towing the line on climate change and, and uh, collecting government paychecks for that. Now, Daniel Del Monte, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a great article on educational collapse and the definition of truth. I wanted to give you a couple of excerpts here. He says, it's no secret that America's students are struggling. The latest nation's report cards have not been flattering, with average scores in both math and reading declining over recent years. 
It's also no secret that pandemic restrictions have only exacerbated the learning decline in the U.S. However, he points out, scores have been falling since before the pandemic, signaling that there are more systemic problems holding back young people. In fact, this educational decline comes from a deeper philosophical brokenness about the notion of truth itself. This rejection of objective truth came first in the upper reaches of academia. Cultural critics like psychologist Jordan Peterson highlight how postmodernism is running through our institutions. Peterson sees the governing philosophy of our times as a toxic brew of postmodernism and Marxism. Now, postmodernism adopts the idea that since people can interpret the world in innumerable ways, there is no correct orthodox manner of interpretation. Compare this to the traditional Judeo-Christian West, which has maintained belief in one orthodox truth, a truth that shows other interpretations of the world to be wrong. Okay, so Jesus, for instance, explicitly said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Marxism expands on postmodernism's rejection of truth by politicizing it. Marxism judges interpretations of reality as limiting frameworks imposed by the ruling class on marginalized people, and it demands the dissolution of hegemonic structures that justify the status quo. The combination of postmodernism and Marxism emerges in the trinity of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity asserts that no one's interpretation of reality is correct. Equity seeks to dissolve dominant interpretations of that truth that reportedly marginalize certain groups so as to redistribute benefits in society. Inclusion demands the recognition of perspectives opposite our own as they allegedly have an equal claim to truth. Yet Daniel Del Monte says once truth has become a set of equally viable interpretations with no exclusive claim from any one system, genuine education cannot take place. Any attempt to seek truth, an enterprise surely central to education, is doomed to failure from the beginning because the truth that it seeks is only perspectival. Claiming one has truth displays power that marginalizes different perspectives. By the way, if you want to see a really good example of what that looks like, watch Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? And you'll notice when he's talking to the gender studies professor, holy cow, does that guy get offended when, when Matt says, look, I'm just trying to arrive at the truth. What do you mean by that term? Why would you take such a hostile stance? Because he said the word truth. This interview is over. Off comes the mic and, you know, Professor Gender Studies huffs off to go cry into his pillow. I mean, it's just, wow. All Matt said is we're just trying to determine what is an objective truth. <gasps> oh, clearly there is no such thing. So Daniel Del Monte says one of the major philosophical salvos that led to this postmodern understanding of truth is the notion of a language game developed by Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein denied that words have a simple one-to-one correspondence to things in reality and said, in fact, he said, words are ambiguous, holding meanings that depend on a given context. Language is not some disembodied mirror reflecting reality. Instead, it's like a toolbox with many different purposes. For example, we can make an assertion raise a question, or issue a command. Given the variable uses of language, we cannot establish any simple correspondence between words and things. So, Daniel Del Monte says, the idea of a language game within which a word has a certain meaning, unique to a context, is a precursor to the postmodern critique of objective truth. Instead of one reality being bound to an orthodox interpretation that's uniquely true, 
postmodernism gives us an ambiguous reality yielding an infinite array of equally viable viable narratives. Rather, These narratives, like words, are true only within a certain context. In other words, objective truth is gone. He says this idea is devastating to a traditional educational structure. If education is supposed to lead a pupil to truth, denying the boundaries between truth and falsehood strips learning of any meaningful purpose. Yet the, necess- the necessary idea, rather, of a single absolute truth, a transcendent perspective, contradicts DEI. Respecting diversity means validating the interpretation of another group, not upholding one's own as absolute. The trinity of DEI undermines the traditional quest of classical education to find the essences of things. For the great thinkers of ancient Greece, the central questions about reality were not postmodern or inclusivist. Inclusivist. Let me try that again. Inclusivist. Okay, I got it. Such as, how do you interpret reality? Or, what does this mean to you? Instead, they dealt with the essence of the thing. The tu tiesti, or the things what it is. He says the essence of thing is intrinsic and defensive, or definitive rather, and it supports traditional conceptions of truth. Now, Daniel Del Monte concludes, however, there cannot be essences in the DEI regime because to claim an objective essence would be to marginalize those who don't recognize that essence. And so the project of education, the seeking of essences, never begins. Interesting explanation, and I think it's pretty much on topic, right on the money, as far as, you know, why why things are going off the rails so quickly. One final note, and this is the article of the day. I would really love for you to check out Sasha Stone's article about uh, the reality of January 6th and how the press became the enemy of the American people. I love her take on just about everything because I believe she is one of those people who has, has experienced a falling away for, of the scales from her eyes. She was a true believer. She was a left-wing Democrat. But something woke her up to where she realized, oh my gosh, this is, this is a, a distortion. There is a, there's deception in how not only the, the Democratic Party is conducting itself, but particularly how the American media is trying to manipulate the American people and the public's awareness. She's very good and very thorough. And I find that uh, the information that she gives is about as credible as anything you're going to find. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree or else. I'm just saying it's really nice to find a credible source. And so in interest of helping others find that credible source, I'm happy to share this one with you. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.